it's not something you need to go to the Galapagos for or to study fossils for to observe. It's, it's a very mundane process that goes on all around us. You are listening to Hey, Podcast listeners, for months since we heard of it, we've been waiting for Menno Schleifeisen's book, When Darwin Comes to Town, How the Urban Jungle Drives Evolution, to come out. Um, now it's finally out, and I got a chance to interview Menno for our podcast. We hope you like the interview. Um, Menno will be talking at the Academy of Natural Science at the Philadelphia Drexel University Town Square series on April 11th. The program gets going at 5.30 and goes till 8.30. If you're hearing this and you're in the Philadelphia area before April 11th, then head on out and see them. If you're listening to this after that date or if you're not in Philadelphia, you still think it's a great interview and the book is totally worth checking out or buying or downloading or however you read books. It's full of really fascinating examples of evolution taking place in cities and other forms of adaptation by animals and plants to city living, uh, to city landscapes. Um, and also some interesting discussion about what makes evolution in urban settings possibly different than evolution in more, quote, natural settings. Might not agree with everything uh, that Menno proposes in terms of management or, or conservation recommendations for cities, but either way, it's a great starting point for conversation uh, against just some fascinating examples of what evolution looks like in urban settings. Thanks. Of course, if you like our podcast, please rate it highly on your podcast listening app of choice. If you want to get a hold of us, like if you've got a book coming out about urban wildlife or urban nature in some way, please pop us an email at urbanwildlifecast at gmail.com. Send us something on Twitter at urbwildlifecast, and we'll be happy to talk to you and hopefully put something on the podcast. My name is Menno Schildhuizen, and uh, I'm a professor of evolutionary biology at uh, Leiden University in the Netherlands and also um, a research scientist at the Naturalis Biodiversity Center, also in Leiden. Could you talk a little bit about house crows? Um, where ah, do they live? Yes. How do they get there? House crows are um, a species of uh, tropical Crows, which uh, originally occurred in um, sort of South South Asia, in India, Sri Lanka, Bangladesh, Burma, um, and um, it seems that over the past few centuries they have given up their natural niche and have uh, started living with people instead. And in fact, you don't find them in the wild anymore; you only find them in cities. Um, in their native range, but also in tropical cities all over the world. Uh, you find them in Singapore, you'll find them uh, in various cities in Africa, in the Middle East. Um, and even until recently, there was a population occurring in, in my home country, in the Netherlands, um, in the city of Rotterdam, which was founded by a few, uh, probably a pair of birds that had hitched a ride on a ship, on a cargo ship, probably from who knows where. It could have been Singapore or some other uh, big Asian port, and uh, somehow managed to uh, to survive and actually thrive in uh, in the Netherlands, which is which is almost uh, well 50 degrees latitude north of where they, where they normally occur. And so you said up until recently, what happened to them? Ah, yes, they um, 
Well, this this this, this pair um, multiplied into a colony of about 40, 50 individuals, which were happily living around a soccer field and building their nests from from uh, colored nylon string that they they, they pilfered from uh, from shipping rope in the in the port, and they were eating uh, fish and chip scraps from the from the, the snack bar on the corner. Um, but then, um, and everybody liked them. They were, were getting visits from local bird watchers because it's a, well, it's just a new species to many of them uh, to watch. Um, but then the local authorities got wind of it, and um, it's it's a species that is, in, in some cities in the tropics, is considered a nuisance. It's a pest. Singapore, for example, there were hundreds of thousands of them, and they were eating garbage and people didn't like them so they started culling them um, and the local authorities in the Netherlands were afraid that the same might happen to these birds in the Netherlands so they decided that uh, this um, this invasion should be nipped in the bud so they hired a professional hunter to um, to kill all the um, all the crows which was harder than um, than they thought first of all because because the local people didn't like it they were actually quite fond of these <laughs> these crows so they set up a committee to protect them um, and also the crows are very clever so that it took this um, this hunter many years actually to get, to finally shoot the last one because they are very good at evading him as soon as they started recognizing him what makes a species like a house crow what distinguishes them and what makes them able to sort of to slip into cities like this yeah it's um it, it's hard to give a general answer to that. Um, it depends, I think, on the type of, type of animal or plant that you're talking about. Crows are are very good at um, living with people. They are uh, animals that are normally from sort of uh, dynamic environments. I mean, in the wild, you will um, you will often find crows in in habitats that are already quite um, Unstable, which which change a lot, like like floodplains and and estuaries and um, places like that. So they are probably already predisposed to deal with a change, constantly changing environment, and to be very good at at finding new opportunities. And that's of course uh, a characteristic that is very useful for an urban species. And I think in in many birds that's that's something that you do see, uh, and probably mammals too, that the ones that are good at becoming an urban species are successful in, in cities um, are animals that are originally from that sort of habitat. But um, there's many other uh, characteristics that can help. For example, um, species that originally live in very rocky environments on cliffs, like the rock pigeon, which is now the city pigeon, like the peregrine falcon, which also is thriving in many cities. Those are species of birds that um, originally live uh, in, in very rocky places with a lot of cliffs, which to them resembles perfectly the, the landscape we've created in cities with, with tall buildings and ledges on which they can perch and nest. So um, those are a few characteristics, but um, for every type of animal, you can list a number of conditions that seem to predispose species, species to become urban species. So once, let's say, something like uh, a pigeon, a rock pigeon, ends up finding cities as, as good habitat, what are some examples of how you see pigeons and other species uh, apparently evolving to be even better suited to, to urban habitats? 
Yeah, exactly, because the, the pre predisposition is, is just the first step that will probably help them to uh, to gain a foothold in in the urban environment. But after that, it seems that in, in, in most species, there are additional evolutionary changes that take place in the city populations, which make them better and better at at dealing with, with the conditions that we humans throw at them. So in city pigeons, for example, it's it's been shown by French researchers that um, in cities, the, the pigeons have darker plumage. Um, so in, in, in pigeons, you find several different uh, types of feather color. They can be light gray. They can be dark gray. Uh, in cities, you find the dark gray ones much more frequently than outside of cities. And it turns out that this has to do with the fact that they can use their feathers to get rid of um, pollution by heavy metals. So lead and zinc, um, which they ingest uh through their food and their water in in city environment, there's quite a lot of lead and zinc pollution in in cities. From from zinc is being used as as coating on on lampposts, for example, it's constantly flaking off, and that's how they ingest it. But it's it's not good for them. And um, the the darker ones are better at uh, surviving because there's more melanin, the pigment that makes these feathers dark, uh, in in their plumage, and melanin binds to these heavy metal. So though they uh, instead of keeping it in their in their system, they can detox themselves by um, putting this these lead and zinc ions in their feathers, and which and when the feathers shed, and then then uh, they can do the same thing again with the new feather that they uh, that they grow. So that's one example of uh, a process of urban evolution on top of this this, this predisposition that they already had. You've also in the book talked a little bit about examples of species that that might not have actually been evolving but have adapted behavior you talk about some of the, like let's say the songbird song responses songbirds are a very good example of um of animals that um change their 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 acoustics so they change their songs uh, especially the frequency at the, of the songs at which they um, they sing um in, in cities, there's a lot of background noise from traffic, and birds which have um, a low-frequency song will have trouble um, getting heard, being heard by their by their conspecifics um, in um, in such a noisy environment. So what you see in cities is that they they start singing at a higher pitch. Uh, um, and then the, the 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 frequency of the song rises above the background noise, and they, they continue. They can continue to communicate with each other. Um, it's not always clear whether that is simply a matter of of learning. Uh, in many birds, for example, they have quite a big repertoire. They have low pitched songs and high pitched songs, and that they simply learn that they have more success when they pick the the high pitched ones, and then that changes then their repertoire uh, over time. Um, that would be a learning effect, a sort of an, an, an adaptation in what they do without any genetic change. But there's also some uh, some examples of birds which um, where actually the song frequency seems to be evolving, where it's really a genetically determined um, the, the pitch at which they sing is genetically determined, and there you see that um, 
this species is changing um, in, a, in a sort of non-reversible way, the, the, the pitch at which they sing. Um, and we see this, um, for example, in, in birds which are not songbirds, but which, which, which still call. Um, and um, I think, for, for example, pigeons actually and um, woodpeckers, there are several groups of, of birds which, which, of course, also produce sounds, but they're not songbirds and for them the the pitch at which they they call is uh, is much more strongly genetically determined and in those species you also see that the pitch changes so there it might actually be a genetic change rather than simply learning to to sing at a higher pitch is this anything particularly new i mean i i know that urbanization to the extent that we're seeing it today is new mm-hmm. um but humans have been shaping landscapes for I don't know, tens of thousands of years, looking at, I guess, ways species might have adapted to agricultural landscapes. Mm-hmm. I don't know, thinking of like house sparrows or something like that. Yeah. Um, is urban evolution distinctive in some way, or is it just like another phase of of life adapting to to human landscape changes? Yeah, I think you're right that that um, in some sense urban evolution is. Um, no different from any other of the other cases of rapid evolution in response to humans changing the environments that we've that we've seen in the past. Um, although often people don't realize that evolution is involved, but many agricultural pests, for example, that have appeared over the over the centuries, probably also involve evolution. That is, are often wild insects that that hop onto a crop that we humans plant. And then become a pest, and often this this process of becoming a pest involves genetic changes that make these insects exploit this crop better than their than their original food plant. So that's also a case of of evolution that you could could consider urban evolution, or at least uh, what I call high rec human induced rapid evolutionary change, which is any kind of adapta- evolutionary adaptation to an, an, a change in the environment that is caused by humans. Um, but I do think that there is something special, special about specifically urban evolution in that um, the whole system of um, the urban ecosystem evolving um, seems to be running um, by different rules than is the case in natural environments. And that has to do with, with, with two things. Um, first, the fact that um, it's a, sort of a global phenomenon, which which is often not the case in, in natural systems. The fact that, you, that cities are connected um, globally, both in terms of the species that are being transported between cities by, by humans and by traffic and by uh, commution, um, are being homogenized, but also the conditions to which animals and plants in cities adapt are being homogenized. As soon as a new innovation takes place, let's say uh, LED lights, LED lights uh, in, in street lighting, which which have a much more much broader spectrum than than the street lights we've seen in in the past few decades. Um, presumably, a lot of nocturnal animals and plants need to adapt to that new uh, spectrum of artificial light at night, um, and this this innovation is spreads via technology all over the world in 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 a very short time. So this um, um, 
this system of globally connected urban ecosystems is is something that that is really unique um in evolution now all the previous cases of of evolution that we've seen would not have been so so um globally synchronized as they can be in uh, in an urban context so i think that that makes urban evolution quite quite un- unusual as a as a process what do you think we should do about it um is this something just to to observe is it something to fight is it something to foster what do you think i think it's definitely something to to be um interested in and to be wanting to monitor and to observe um simply because it's um in a sort of an educational and and environmental awareness sense i think it's it can be very instructive to realize that such a profound process as evolution is actually a very mundane uh, law of nature that you can watch taking place all around you even in in your backyard um and it's also something that that citizen science can play a big role in i think because people are concentrated by definition in cities that's also where you can find the largest concentrations of of observers who can make pictures of animals and plants and we can use those photographs to to document the changes in the appearance of uh, of animals and plants in cities so i really have a dream that we could build a citizen science evolution urban evolution observatory of uh, made up of um, of people who are uploading pictures of uh, of animals and plants in cities all over the world um and also i think if if cities continue to grow and this urban habitat becomes a more and more um uh systematic part of life on earth uh and definitely it will be the kind of environment that most people will be seeing most in the future most people on earth will not be traveling to pristine habitats but most of the wildlife they will see will be in the the cities where they live um a lot of the ecosystems that we are part of will be urban ecosystems so um the evolution of those of those systems is going to be a, a very um a very important part of the, the the world's ecosystems of which humans play a, fun, a very fundamental part so uh, if we can um observe understand and maybe even harness this process of urban evolution and by harnessing i mean we could design cities in such a way that urban evolution in in urban animals and plants is stimulated um we can actually make use of of the process to build uh, maybe a more livable uh, environment for the future i think one of the things you could do is um, be aware of the fact that that the city is already full of species that are um adapted to urban conditions so if you're building or designing a new green area um or a green wall or a green roof it might be wiser not to stock those places with just with with plants that you pick out of a catalog of a garden center you could you could simply provide the soil and wait for these vegetations to develop naturally out of the pre-adapted plants and animals that are already living in the city and that are more than happy to colonize new um new new bits of available soil 
so that's one one way to do that and uh, another thing would be to maybe reconsider the um the idea that green areas in cities should always be connected this is a has of course been a trend to make corridors between parks and patches of green vegetation in in the city because that's um what we've learned from from conservation outside of cities that connecting all these fragments fragments of of vegetation is uh, is good and it, it it can be very good for large um animals which need more space to survive and they can get more space if you connect a lot of small pieces but in cities um probably local adaptation is maybe even more important than outside of cities the fact that um every city park has its own ecological signature its own uh, special local conditions that the animals and plants that are living in that park need to adapt to and if you connect those parks then it could be that you're um that you're creating um sort of an effect of swamping of genes that are locally suited for the local condition by by genes that come in from other parks and which may prevent that process of local adaptation so um i think it might for 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 many smaller animals and and also plants it might actually be good not to connect those parks but actually allow the species in those parks uh, or in those those pockets of 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 greenery to adapt to the perfectly to the local conditions rather than connecting them by um by 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 making uh, corridors between them so those are two two examples of ways that i could see to to stimulate this process of urban evolution. What do you do about species that that live in a place prior to there being a city, but weren't, let's say, um, weren't predisposed to be able to, to live in the city in the first place? Um, mm-hmm. So how do you balance sort of broader conservation goals for the place that a city has grown up in um, with what might be sort of city-specific conservation goals? Mm. Yeah, that's a, that's a good point. You 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 do of course have this sort of generalized urban um wildlife that that you see in cities everywhere and which is also homogenized between cities cities but at the same time cities can also be places where very local species are surviving which are not maybe the best urban species but which you would also like to to preserve in a city context and often Cities are, are the only places where these species can survive. If, if outside of the city there's very intensive agriculture, um, so in those cases, um, I think sometimes individual species can be important. Um, although I think real species-focused conservation still tends to pick out a few charismatic species, which are not necessarily um keystone species in in the food web we 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 conserve them because we we like them um so there may be lots of species that we don't know about which we for it's the same um applies um so it's it's not always sure whether you should focus on producing a uh, food web in the city that that is has has the rights 
functional components in it that run smoothly, or whether you should focus on individual species that that, that have high conservation value. Um, but I think you can probably do both. There are, um, if you have good monitoring of where species are and how they're distributed in the city, then you can you can actually um, pinpoint bits of of, of habitats in cities where these these local endemic species occur which you could um you could give special protection and maybe actually by preventing um those corridors that I talked about earlier um you can actually maintain a species in a in a pocket of habitat even though it, it would have been um outcompeted by a similar species that uh, would have been been introduced if you had connected it with with other patches in the city so I guess some sort of conservation strategy in which you um, you identify um, fragments of, of vegetation in a city that have these interesting local species um, and other ones which which have a more generalized um, urban urban wildlife. And if you make sure that those do not get in too much contact with each other, you can you can have your cake and eat it. <laughs> Thanks. Um, so one thing, one last question I should have asked you before. How did you end up writing a book about this topic? I like to see myself as sort of an all-round evolutionary biologist. I'm interested in, in anything that has to do with ecology and evolution and also in my research. I, yeah, I, I actually have a rather short attention span. I spent a few years on one topic and then I moved to something else. Um, and on top of that, I have uh, this habit of writing books for the general public, which do not necessarily need to have a very strong connection with my own research. It's just that I I know about the field, so I like to explain it to a more general audience. Um, and, it, and that's certainly true in this case, although um, I do do some research on urban evolution myself, on, on snails mostly. Um, but the main reason, I think, to write this this book is that I myself am fascinated by these these very observable close to home examples of of rapid evolutionary change and I use examples like that a lot in my teaching and in lectures I give to the general public and I think it's a very um, evocative way of introducing people with the process of evolution and making them realize that it's uh, it's not something you need to go to the Galapagos for or to study fossils for to observe. It's it's a very mundane process that goes on all around us, and um, by by placing that story in the context of something so familiar to us as the cities we live in, um, you bring it literally very close to home. Hey, podcast listeners, we hope you liked that interview with Manoj Delfizen. Uh, again, if you're in the Philadelphia area on April 11th, please come check them out at the Academy of Natural Sciences of Philadelphia of Drexel University their Town Square series from 5.30 to 8.30. If you're not in Philadelphia or you're hearing this after that date, uh, don't worry, the book is still amazing. Please check it out, buy it, download it, however you want to consume the book. And of course, if you want to get in touch with us about your book or anything else you want to get in touch with us about, you can try us at Herb Wildlife Cast on Twitter or send us an email at urbanwildlifecast at gmail.com. And here we're going to leave you with a little extra, a conversation we had with someone at a recent Biophilly seminar, uh, we were talking to some people about their urban wildlife experiences just before Tony talked on a panel about urban wildlife and broadly speaking how architects and designers and engineers can work nature 
at putting together landscapes that humans live in? How can we make them great landscapes for nature also? My name is Elizabeth Glass. Well, when I was a student, um, I lived 10 years in San Juan and they want us. San Juan, San Juan, Puerto Rico, yeah, the capital of Puerto Rico. And the iguanas, they're kind of an invasive species now, and you can see them, like, going across the street, even on the highways, uh, getting on the backyards of the houses, everywhere. You can see them everywhere. And people are getting, like, stressed with them, but at the same time, at least for me, I really like it to see them because yeah, there's another... There's another species living with us, and you know you have to deal with it and integrate them to the to the nature. So, yeah. Exotic, invasive. <laughs>